by clinical trainees and for clinical trainees, this is Well-Rounded. Well-Rounded is your resource for all things healthcare, business, and policy. Your hosts today are Dan Arteaga and Lauren Tronick. This episode takes a look at the idea of single-payer healthcare from the point of view of a skeptic. Our guest is Dr. Robert Hertzka, a practicing anesthesiologist in San Diego, past president of the California Medical Association, and former chair of the AMA's Political Action Committee. He also teaches healthcare policy at UC San Diego School of Medicine. Welcome to Well-Rounded. Hi, everyone. It's Dan and Lauren here with Dr. Robert Hertzka. Uh, He's a little bit of a Medicare for all skeptic, a single payer skeptic, and we're going to talk about some of the tough issues surrounding these plans. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hertzka. Happy to be here. Yeah. So I think that what we can start with maybe is a definition of single payer. I guess we'll define for our listeners, single payer is a system in which a single public agency organizes healthcare funds, healthcare financing, Um, Right now, what you see in the news, people are really excited about a plan called Medicare for All. Medicare is a health insurance that traditionally funds health care for people who are age 65 and older. And Medicare for All supporters um, are passionate about it basically because it would provide health insurance to all individuals regardless of age. Right. And then as far as a public option, which is another term that's being thrown around right now a lot in the news, a public option is kind of a middle ground between what you just described, single payer, and what we have now. So now only some people can qualify for government-run programs, and those programs are Medicare and Medicaid. And basically, if there were a public option, more people would be able to get that government insurance if they wanted it. There are lots of different proposals for what that actually might look like. But the core point is that more people could get that coverage that is government insurance if they wanted to buy into it. So, Dr. Hertzke, how, how did we do with our definitions? <laughs> did we get those okay? Well, uh, I would, I'd say close. Okay. Um, the uh, Medicare for All is exactly that. A single government entity would collect dollars, pay for all healthcare, actually set every rate. There would be no more negotiation like there, like I might have with Anthem or Cigna. There would just be, as like Medicare is, Medicare basically tells us every year how much we get paid for each procedure or each hospital admission and things. So it would be like that. The public option is a notion that is quite popular because why not give people more choices? But the public option plans that are actually out there are plans that would pay all hospitals, physicians, everybody else at Medicare rates, which have turned out to be considerably lower than private rates. Okay. So that's an important distinction. Yeah. And so the public option would then be much less expensive because you're paying hospitals about 40% less than you are now and and physicians about 20%. And people would then be very attracted to this much lower cost plan. And so for someone in my position reviewing health policy, I just see it as uh, the public option notion as just single payer over a longer transition period. Mm -hmm. So I actually don't see public options as a middle ground. I just see it as two versions of the same idea. I think you touched on an important point, which is something that people are talking about in the news right now is how are we going to pay for these plans? Um, It seems like a lot of funding is going to be required. Maybe taxes will go up. Can we go into that a little bit for our listeners? 
Sure. I mean, there's certainly a debate. The vast majority of economists see a need to create significant additional taxation. If you look at the ballot propositions in Oregon or Colorado in recent years, or even the analysis of the California single-payer proposal in 2017, I'll use that as an example, they felt that the cost of the system in California would be $400 billion a year, and they would have to raise half of that in new taxes. And that could be as much as a 15 or 16% payroll tax, could be significant sales, taxes, things like that. While, I, while I'm on that topic, an extremely reputable group, bipartisan, known as the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, they came out and said that to finance this, you would need things on the order of a 32% tax on all payroll or a 42% VAT, meaning that the cost of every single thing you buy from a carton of milk to an automobile, the price would have to be raised 42% to wow. collect enough money. Just to clarify, a lot of the Democratic candidates who support single-payer also support more progressive systems of taxation. Is there a way that with a more progressive taxation system, we could get this funding? Or is are these taxes going to hit pretty much everybody? They would really have to hit everyone. There's a, a limit. If you're in a high tax bracket now in a state like California, you're already paying half of your income into income taxes you could probably confiscate every dollar earned over 10 million and that would only be a down payment on what you would need to finance an entirely new healthcare system and taxes like a like a VAT actually disproportionately would affect lower income individuals it sounds like there are really quite a few barriers to enacting single payer legislation and that we've seen some of those barriers play out in California well there's certainly there's, there's been enthusiasm for single payer for decades in California. The voters voted against it 73-27 in 1994. Yes. And then there were several attempts during the governorship of Pete Wilson through 98. While uh, Governor Schwarzenegger was governor, it was also proposed, but not voted through. But then interestingly, uh, at the end of our Jerry Brown governorship, on the eve of Gavin Newsom becoming governor, it was voted out of our state Senate. Uh, even though they did not articulate a financing plan, their staff said you need to come up with $200 billion in new taxes. It wasn't stated, and they passed it anyhow. So what's happened since then? We're still waiting. So there's actually been no activity. What Governor Newsom has done is appoint a commission that hasn't met, started meeting yet, that is supposed to develop the financing plan for what could be a single payer plan. I see. But that is moving very slowly. And I think all the energy now is to elect a Democratic president, change the composition of Congress such that it comes federally. Are there other states where single payer legislation has been successful in the United States? Well, and that's an excellent question. In Vermont, the state legislature passed legislation, the governor signed it, and it was ready to go January 1 of 2015. Mm -hmm. And the governor, who was all for it, and his commission dutifully looked at what they would have to do, and they realized that they would have to impose, it was approximately a 10% payroll tax and increase sales taxes 10%. And the governor actually, with two weeks to go, said, never mind our economy could not tolerate this. And so he actually pulled the plug. In Mm. the end, single payer only makes sense if you're going to do it federally. Uh, Mm. And I think that's where the political attention is actually appropriately designated. 
So that's interesting to me because when the ACA was enacted, there were a number of state-based health insurance marketplaces. So the ACA seemed like an extension of what was already going on in some of those states. Why do you say that single payer couldn't work in a single state? Well, part of it is I don't actually think any president of any party is going to give a blank check and no oversight of considerable federal dollars and tell a state, well, this is what we gave you last year so you can have it again. And we're just going to let you do it. Now, Vermont was so tiny, they actually got that waiver from the Obama administration because Vermont's minuscule. And so the Obama administration said, sure, you can have the same amount of Medicare and Medicaid dollars you got last year. So because of the importance of federal funding for these programs, it's almost impossible for a state to do it on its own, unless it's a very small state like Vermont, and they right. and so, couldn't do it right. anyway. I was excited about it. Vermont <laughs> was a perfect, no, Vermont was a perfect experiment. Right. They wanted to do it. It was then fascinating that even with all the federal dollars available for them to manage, they still said, we can't put it together. It's still going to be too expensive. Right. This is all super interesting and actually tests a lot of the assumptions that I think that I came into this conversation with. But based, I think, on what we're seeing at our, our respective medical centers, it's it sounds like a lot of people support single payer as a way to provide health care for all Americans. Um, another reason a lot of people support it is that it might help reduce costs. We hear all the time that the costs of the healthcare system are skyrocketing and that we need to do a better job of controlling them. Do you think that we have a good reason to think that a single-payer system would make healthcare more affordable overall? I, I don't. There's no real evidence that government-based entities are inherently efficient. Uh, what people don't really realize is that quietly over time, Medicare has actually been paying hospitals in particular, but also physicians, much less than private insurers. There is an entity called the Medicare Actuary, and they have been printing for at least a decade now statistics about how those payments compare. And so right now, if you look at the aggregate of what Medicare pays hospitals, they say that hospitals, as an average, have to collect 170% of Medicare rates, 170% of Medicare, just to stay afloat. This is from and, private insurers. Right. So they have to collect. So if so if Medicare pays a hospital $100 for something, they're losing money. So they have to go to their Cygnus and their Aetnas and their Anthem patients and collect 170 So on the one hand, it makes private premiums outrageously high. And that's what people see. They see these outrage, you know, they're angry, they're paying so much for private insurance. They don't realize that 15 to 20% of their private health insurance premium is actually a backfill to Medicare. Mm. So to say that Medicare for all, sure, if you impose Medicare rates, you would save a fortune. You'd actually would save a fortune. But what hospital could survive by having half their patients take a 40% pay cut? So what you're saying is basically that. Uh, the plans might reduce the cost overall, but basically just because Medicare pays significantly less than private insurance. Right. And there's just no way you can maintain our standards of quality in hospitals and our nursing salaries and all equipment levels and all that on Medicare rates. It's just not possible. But that's not what the candidates want to discuss. But yes, you would save money if you could force everyone to be on Medicare rates. So with something like Medicare for All, taxes may go up, but as you just said, insurance premiums can be incredibly high. Wouldn't people save more on their health care premiums than they would pay in taxes? 
there there will certainly uh, the population is varied in their situations and there would be a subset and but only a small subset for whom that's true recall that most people don't really pay they feel like they're paying for their health insurance but their employer is paying and when that happens they actually get that as a tax free benefit so they would lose all of that uh, and the hundred or two hundred a month they might be paying into that is actually probably less than what they would pay in taxes. Now, one can say the employers would save considerable dollars and employers may turn around and increase some people's pay, but there's no obligation to do that. So yes, you can find individuals for whom that's the case, but that's not the case for example, a Medicare recipient. It's not a case for a Medicaid recipient. Uh, Wide swaths of the population would clearly be paying much more in taxes than they would ever save in premiums, but yes, you can you could find individuals for whom that would be the case. So if one of these measures were to pass, would hospitals be able to operate like they currently do, or would we see them turn into something else? Well, we saw a little bit of this in the state of Washington recently, because Washington passed that public option that we talked about, which I was referring to as single payer in slow motion. Uh, and they were going to have the public option pay the hospitals 100%. And the hospitals blanket said, we're not in. We will not be providers. And so they are actually going to go in at 160%. And the hospitals still think they lose money. But just to get the conversation started, they're at 160% of Medicare. Hospitals are the, one of the largest employers in almost every congressional district. 18 million people work mm-hmm. in healthcare. It's just not going to, I mean... The system can't tolerate that much shock. Well, speaking of shock, I am in my first year of medical school. And by the time I hit residency, by the time I actually enter the workforce, I'm going to have amassed a pretty substantial amount of student debt. And I am by no means alone in that. So I'm kind of curious if something, you know, if hospitals are getting less money from insurers, Um, how is something like single payer going to impact me as a practicing physician? Would this be a bad time to mention that I went all through medical school at $300 a quarter? (laughs) We are are (laughs) boiling with jealousy. In in that case, I won't mention it. (laughs) So I am acutely aware of this issue and have participated in personally in a variety of initiatives to try to alleviate that. In the aggregate, uh, Medicare pays physicians currently 20% less than private private insurance. Actually, by 2034, with the current Medicare payment formulations, by 2034, it'll be half. Medicare will pay half of private insurance rates by 2034? Yeah, Medicare has basically been frozen for 20 years. So I'm actually paid the same as I was in 1999 or so. And so any increase in my income has strictly come from my ability to negotiate with private insurers. So obviously, against the standard of living, if you just flatten out your income, it's actually rather dramatic. So Dr. Hertzka, it's, it's clear that you're concerned about the feasibility of single payer in this country. What alternative forms of healthcare reform do you imagine being feasible? Well, I, uh, it's, you know, it's not as sexy and it's not a single big sweeping move like single payer. But I think at this point, people are really underrating what the Affordable Care Act did in terms of the uh, Medicaid expansion, which is not taken by all states. The key to me and to the extent that any of this audience are, say, medical students, 
The key is really to keep physicians in charge of a lot of this. You want the physicians who understand the needs of patients to be as much in control of that. And that's what Kaiser Permanente does probably better than anyone. But Geisinger does it in Pennsylvania, Intermountain Healthcare, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic. Kaiser is an equal playing field of a health plan, a hospital, and a medical group. And the three of them on equal footing sit here annually and negotiate what they want to do. The hospitals all want new wings and fancy stuff and the the doctors all want to be paid more and get great equipment, but the health plan has to set the premiums that will collect all those things. And they can they can only go so far if the premium goes up too much people won't buy Kaiser insurance. So they all have a goal of maximizing the highest quality care, not wasting any money the highest quality of care for the least amount of money. And again, there's no incentive to run the MRI machine all night or to run the operating rooms all day or to do 45,000 more colonoscopies because we bill for each one of them. They flip the incentives there. And over time, this is where it's things like value-based care. There are a lot of slogans, Mm -hmm. but that system's actually living it. And physicians, what's great is physicians are in the middle of those decisions and say, whoa, I don't care if it costs a little more. This is better. Dr. Hersko, we appreciate the the example of Kaiser Permanente with all of the misaligned incentives we see in healthcare. It actually does make a lot of sense to see a physician group, a hospital, and an insurance plan all under the same umbrella. So it's it's kind of nice to hear that that's happening. Mm, right. You know, if, if the Kaiser hospitals are only half full, that's okay. If UCSD is half full, they have meetings about how to generate more patient flow. Uh, and not that, I mean, I'm not picking at UCSD, but any more for-profit enterprise like university hospitals tend to be. Yeah, and I also like what you said about, you know, physicians playing a big or bigger role in in determining the future of insurance and of healthcare. So I'm curious, and we ask, what advice do you have for young trainees? How do we tackle these big problems going forward? Actually, what I actually tell people first and foremost is the best thing that they can do for all the people that they'll be treating is still to be the best physician possible. Hmm. And so work hard, get the best training possible. Uh, By the time you're done training, there'll still be a lot of problems you can work on. (laughs) Uh, Pretty much around the country, California and Texas being two good examples, they're very active state medical associations that typically have very active student participation. I think Lauren has had a little taste of California and has seen that in action. Yes, I have. And I think And so that creates a huge networking opportunity with other students around your state or around the country and in choosing particular projects that you may want to tackle or that you may want to motivate your entire state medical association to tackle. But they are great training grounds in terms of seeing what's going on because when a when the, you know, Dan, you're in Texas, when the governor of Texas trying to figure out what to do with healthcare, trust me, at some point, the leadership of the Texas Medical Association is there and someone shaped their opinions and the students and the residents in Texas had a role in shaping that opinion. And that's, it's more available to students and residents than they realize. And I would encourage you to at least explore that opportunity in whatever state uh, that you find yourself in. I think that's good advice. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Hertzka, we thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Is that a wrap? That's a wrap. 